All right, we're looking at page uh, 45 in our notes. And um, we are, we have looked at the first section of the book of Romans, one through four. And I said that was mainly about justification. Um, the, the revelation of the righteousness that comes from God. So Paul's interested in this concept of the righteousness that comes from God. And uh, we need righteousness to enter heaven. We need perfect righteousness, as a matter of fact. <clears throat> and so how do you get that? And Paul explains to us, of course, we come through faith in Jesus Christ, not from the law, not from circumcision if you're a Jew, but simply it's a gift of God through faith. And we're now in the second section, which is mainly about sanctification. Uh, not everything in five through eight is about sanctification, but it's related to the first part of chapter five, and the part we're in now uh, deals with a couple of concepts. Paul says, since you've been justified by faith, okay, that's finished. We, we, know, we know with that what that is. What does that mean? It results in peace with God. We've been reconciled to God, and we're going to deal with that more completely right here in 9 through 11. And uh, that gives us hope. That gives us hope of ultimate glory, that we will ultimately be like Christ, be perfect in heaven, and so forth. We have a great future to look forward to. And so uh, we have been looking at that, uh, chapter 5. We were looking at chapter 5. I called it a life characterized by the hope. And hope in the Bible, the Greek word elpis, has the idea of sort of a confident expectation. We, we have a confident expectation of glory, of glorification, of being with Christ and God in heaven. And we said the first thing that we talked about was since we've been justified by faith, we have this peace with God. We're no longer enemies of God, as we'll see. We've been reconciled. And we have a, that produces a joyful hope. <clears throat> Even in spite of trials and difficulties, <clears throat> he says that these trials ultimately produce perseverance, and this produces character, and this produces hope in our lives as we live for Christ and seek to obey him. We're ready to look at this final section of, uh, uh, of uh, verses 1 through 12. Um, actually, I've got that A there, 5, 1 through 21. It should be 5, 1 through 12. But uh, I see that error there. Um, assurance of final and complete salvation. And that's uh, on page 45. And so uh, I say here, this passage emphasizes the idea that underlines, <clears throat> underlies the statement of verses two through eight, that the believer's hope of glory cannot fail because it's founded on God's love, a love exhibited in the death of Christ on the cross. Now, Paul reasons here from what is called the lesser, from the greater to the lesser. Uh, this is a common way of arguing. If the greater thing is true, then anything less is true. Like he says in Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? <laughs> if you've got God on your side, okay, it doesn't make any difference. Even the devil can't do anything. You know, God is all powerful. So if something greater is true, the lesser is, is, is a, goes along with that. And he argues that <clears throat> here, that same kind of argument, the idea that in the initial experience of justification. We have been justified. Since we have been justified by faith, the greatest obstacle to our eternal bliss has been overcome. Uh, since that's been settled, we can uh, expect final salvation from the wrath to come. This is where our Arminian friends who believe you can lose your salvation get it all wrong. If God has overcome the greatest obstacle in saving depraved sinners who hated him, who were enemies of God, why would he then save us and throw us away, <laughs> allow us to perish? And that's what Paul is arguing here. He won't. So in verse nine, he says, 
since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? There's that argument, greater or lesser. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved through his life. So as I say, these both verses incorporate this argument from the greater to the lesser. If God has already done the most difficult thing, reconcile and justify unworthy sinners, how much more can he be depended on to accomplish the easier thing, save from eschatological future wrath, those who have been brought into such relationship with him? The contrast in verse 9 is between our just present justification and our future final salvation. How much more shall we be saved in the future? The contrast in verse 10 is between our former pre-conversion hostility. We were enemies toward God and our present state of reconciliation. The word reconcile means to put an end to hostility. It refers to the bringing together or making peace between two estranged or hostile parties. Uh, and he, we talked about how he's, he began the, the chapter with that. Since we have been, therefore, since we've been justified by, through faith, we have peace with God. Now he's going to explain that reconciliation, peace with God a little more. I say particularly important for an understanding of Paul's teaching about reconciliation is the recognition that as the language suggests, there is a, situa there is a situation of mutual hostility that must be overcome. We, of course, are hostile toward God, sinning against his laws, rebelling against his rightful rule, putting other gods in his place. But as Paul has really re repeatedly affirmed in this letter, God is also hostile toward us. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And 325, Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He is the one who takes away the wrath of God. So our sins have justly incurred this wrath, which stands as a sentence over us to be climactically carried out on the day of judgment. This makes clear that the word enemy, since it describes our state when we were reconciled, cannot designate only our hostility toward God, it must include also the hostility of God toward us. We were in a situation or status of enmity with God. And in reconciliation, it's that status or relationship that changes. We go from being God's enemies to being his children. So what then is the relationship between justification and reconciliation? Reconciliation is not just another term for justification nor is it a step beyond justification. Rather, reconciliation views the new relationship established through Christ with God from a different viewpoint than does justification, from a different conceptual framework, the realm of personal relationship rather than the law court. So justification, we're declared righteous, we're forgiven our sins, that's the law court. Reconciliation and justification are two different metaphors for describing what God has done for us in Christ. So different uh, ways of, show, uh, of explaining, different figures of explaining the vast benefits we have in Christ. Um, so, um, you know, if we look at... Uh, this kind of what I've given here, the, the, we talk about salvation. Salvation includes a lot of different concepts. Uh, the two that we're concerned with here are justification and sanctification mainly, but you know, there's redemption, which talks about the fact that we've been purchased out of sin. There's election, we've been elected from the foundation of the world, regeneration, we're born again, we're given a new nature. So Paul uses all of these terms, these figures of speech, these metaphors to explain the vastness of 
salvation. Salvation has a lot of things going on in it. Our salvation, past, present, and future. In fact, as we noted here, we will be saved. Salvation is sometimes spoken as being past. Uh, is sometimes spoken as being present and sometimes future. Because some some things are past. Justification is past. Sanctification is present. Glorification is future. So there are past, present, and future aspects to our salvation. So reconciliation is another term Paul uses because he wants to emphasize the fact that this enmity between the sinner and God has now been removed. God uh, looks upon us favorably as his children. And that's a wonderful thing. That means we can put our heads on the pillow at night and know that God is not angry with us. Now, certainly when we disobey, God is displeased, but we're his children. He loves us and we'll always be in that relationship. Nothing can change that. I see here as in verse nine, justification is accomplished by Christ's blood. So here in verse 10, reconciliation takes through, takes place through the, the death of God's son. So there's no difference between that. Paul can talk about uh, justification by Christ's blood, reconciliation through the death. They're kind of a synonymous terminology here. The final contrast in verse 10 is between the death of Christ from which justification and reconciliation flow and the life of Christ through which our final complete salvation is occurs. Secure, I'm sorry. Uh, he says, for if while we were enemies, God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved? through his life. This is probably a reference here, we will be saved to Christ's um, resurrection and intercessory, uh, intercessory ministry. So Paul says, like in Romans 8, 16, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? There's this future aspect of salvation, and a lot of that involves Christ interceding for us uh, we shall be saved through his life because he lives to intercede, as he says. Therefore, and that therefore in Hebrews 7, 25 points back to verse 24. Therefore, that is, Paul, that is the writer of Hebrews says, because Jesus lives forever, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So Christ is interceding for us at the throne of grace, even though the devil accuses us and uh, before God, uh, Christ is there interceding with his blood, with his death for us. All right. Let's come to our next section, um, uh, 512 through 21, the reign of grace and life, 512 through 21. I say here, this passage uh, rivals 321 through 26 for theological importance. Paul gives us a bird's eye picture of the history of redemption. His subject is human history and the scope is universal. We hear nothing in this paragraph of Jew and Gentile. Both are assumed under the larger category human being. So the perspective here is primarily corporate rather than individual. So we're not thinking of individuals here. We're thinking corporately of people as groups. And Paul teaches us here that all people uh, stand in relationship to one of two men whose actions, those two men, whose actions determines the eternal destiny of all who belong to them. So there's Adam and Christ. Either one belongs to Adam, who is, and, and if, you're un, if you're in Adam, you're under the sentence of death because of sin, or you belong to Christ, and you have assurance of eternal life because of his righteous act, as Paul will use that language in a moment. I'll say the main idea is that the work of Christ, which is called his obedience, 519 is so powerful that it can overcome 
Adam's act of disobedience. And God promised that in the garden, Genesis 3.15. Remember, he said that the devil has made a mess of things. He has, uh, you followed him, and now the human race has fallen, and all who come from Adam are fallen. But there's coming one who is going to uh, destroy Satan, he says. He's going to, this proto-evangelicum, this pre uh, first gospel reference there that promises a Messiah to come. And so uh, that's what Paul is talking about here, Adam and Christ. What then is the relationship between 51221, 512 through 21, and the previous course of Paul's argument? The main connection is with the teaching of assurance of final salvation in the immediately preceding paragraph. Number two, B, we boast in the hope, the confident expectation of ultimate salvation, of hope of the glory of God. Verses 9 and 10, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more? having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So this passage, 512 through 21, shows that those who have been justified and reconciled can be so certain that they'll be saved from wrath and share in the glory of God. They can be certain of this, and that's because Christ's act of obedience ensures eternal life for all those who are in Christ. So we're going to talk about the obedience of Christ here. And if you've been around CBC long enough, you'll know Pastor Ken is always harping on this. I don't mean, <laughs> he's always talking about this, the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience. So we'll talk about that. The obedience is very important theologically. And that's what Paul is saying here. Now, so uh, a way of kind of looking at this arrangement, I've taken this from Doug Moo's, uh, one of his books, is uh, to look at that uh, arrangement again of, of how 512 through 21 fits in. So 1 through 11 talked about how we can be sure we can experience this future glory assurance. It's, this whole section is all about assurance of salvation. We can be sure that we're going to experience future glory. And then the section we're in now, we can have this assurance because... <clears throat> We have new life in Christ because we're in Christ no, and we're no longer in Adam. So we're in Christ. And Paul's going to explain this in Christ thing. How is it that we are in Christ and what does that mean? I say the argument of this paragraph. Now, uh, I hate to say this, but this is where it gets. Uh, so stay with me. Don't go to sleep right here. I'll try to make this plain, but it, it's going to get a little hairy here. So it's not as necessary to understand every little part of this, but let me try here. The argument of this passage proceeds disjointedly because Paul begins in verse 12, the first part of verse 12, with the comparison that he never completes. This passage, 5, 12 through 21, is a very difficult passage theologically. Whole books have been written on chapter 5, verse 12. I've written papers on just this verse myself. It's just, this is, a, this is a very complex theological important verse, very important verse. And uh, so it's, it's, we've, we're going to try to follow Paul's argument here, but it can get a little sticky, a little tricky. So bear with me here. So I say Paul begins with a comparison in verse 12 that he never completes. You know, he starts off, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. That's how he starts off. He starts off seemingly with a comparison, but he doesn't complete it. In answer to the Protestants, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, one would expect an apotheosis such as, so also through one man came righteousness and through righteousness came life. However, the latter part of verse 12 is only a continuation of the protasis. The expected apotheosis from verse 12 doesn't come to verse 18. What am I talking about here? 
All right. Um, what's a protasis? What's an apotasis? Well, these are just technical terms for if you have like an if clause, the if clause is the protasis that comes first, and then there's a conclusion. The conclusion is called the apotasis. So this is just a term that grammarians use to describe a, a uh, comparison or an if clause. You got the first clause, then you have the conclusion to that. So here's an example. If you live in the city of Detroit, you, now, now we've got to have a conclusion to that. You probably are a fan of the Detroit Lions. There's the apotasis. So the if clause, the protasis, the apotasis, you're probably a fan of the Detroit Lions. Now, um, if I were writing Romans, if I were writing Romans, this is what I'd write right here. You know, I'd, I'd write this, but Paul doesn't write what I write. <laughs> Paul uh, kind of goes on a rabbit trail here, a very important rabbit trail. But he actually goes on two of them here. He, he, do, he doesn't actually, he starts with a protasis, but he doesn't really give us uh, the apotasis that I would expect and, and kind of naturally expect. So he starts off with this, just as sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam, right? Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. We die physically and spiritually because of Adam. So just as sin entered the, 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 the world through one man and death through sin. So what we would expect if you were just trying to make this neat and simple is, so also through one man, Jesus Christ, came righteousness and life through righteousness. There's the conclusion that you sort of expect here. Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, you expect the, the conclusion to that is, so through one man, Christ, uh, came righteousness uh, instead of sin and life instead of death. There's, there's what you would expect. But that's not what we get in 5.12. He starts off and says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, then he goes off into this. And in this way, death came to all people because all sin. He never gives us the apotasis. The second part of that verse is not the conclusion we expect. Now, Paul eventually gets around to it. He just restates it in different words. Here's what, here's what he's, here's the, here's the conclusion of this whole discussion is about. He'll finally get to it in verse 18 and verse 19. Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. Well, that's the thing. That's the same thing as 512. Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. He's saying essentially the same thing. Just as one trespass, that's Adam in the garden, resulted in condemnation for all people. Okay, now here's the apotheosis. So also one righteous act, Christ, resulted in justification. And what does it say there? Life, Life for all people. So uh, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but uh, we'll try to explain it more fully as we go through here. So I say that this argument proceeds a little disjointedly because Paul starts with a protasis and we don't get what we would naturally expect here. I say the latter half of verse 12 is only a continuation of the protasis, the expected protasis that has come to verse 18. Then in verse 13, he kind of goes off in 13 and 14 into kind of another little rabbit trail that we'll have to trace down. Verses 13 through 17 are actually parenthetical to the comparison introduced in verse 12a. But instead of finishing the comparison, he begins in 12a, Paul expands on the first part of this comparison in the sin of Adam in 12b through 14. At the end of verse 14, in affirming that Adam is a type of Christ, Paul hints at the completion of the comparison, but before stating it, he institutes a series of contrast between Adam and Christ in verses 15 and 17. Roughly then in two parallel statements in verse 18 and 19, the full comparison is made. 
So um, I don't mean to say there's anything wrong with what Paul is doing when I say a rabbit trail. I'm just saying that uh, uh, Paul's argument does not proceed as one might expect. He has other purposes in mind. God has other purposes in mind that he wants to teach us. So it's a little harder for us to follow here. Um, but I'm just trying to show you where he's ultimately getting to here. All right, so let's look at verse 12. And I call it an unfinished comparison, remember, because Paul starts off, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, okay, there's the Protestants, but he doesn't finish the comparison, as I said, until verse 18. He doesn't compare two things. He goes on further to explain what he's saying in verse 12. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. I say here that therefore points up the fact that there is a logical connection between the passage under consideration and the discussion that precedes it. In order for believers to experience this justification, reconciliation, and future glorification explained in 5, 1 through 11, there must exist a life-giving union between Christ and believers that is similar to, but more powerful than, the death-producing union between Adam and humanity. So everybody who comes into this world is connected to Adam. They're united with Adam. They're in Adam. And they share his fallen nature. We need a new union. And that's with Christ. I say here, the one man through whom sin entered the world of humanity was, of course, Adam. Although Eve was the first human to sin, a fact Paul himself acknowledges, it is Adam's sin that had penal consequences. That is, there was a penalty for the entire race, which Adam's subs Paul's subsequent argument will demonstrate. So Eve sinned first. She fell. She became a sinner. She lost her state of untested creature holiness. So Adam and Eve were created in a state of holiness. Theologians usually call it sort of provisional holiness. And the assumption, it's just an assumption, but the, the theory is, is that if Adam and Eve had obeyed God, they would have been confirmed in a righteous state, but they didn't. So Eve ate first, she fell. But what Eve did didn't affect the race the descendants, it was what Adam did. Uh, so Adam had the consequences, the penal consequences for the entire race. Paul constantly refers to sin in the singular in 5.12 through 8.13. So we're going to see that. Sin is seen in the singular. Sin in this verse is sort of personified. It's like a person, it's like a power. It's seen as carrying out an active role. Paul says sin reigns. I mean, people reign. So you see, it's, 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 it's seen like a power, a person. It reigns. It can be obeyed, as you'll say in chapter 6. It pays wages. The wages of sin is death, like an employer. It seizes opportunity. It deceives and kills, all kinds of things. So Paul pictures sin as a power that rules the world outside of Christ. As we've seen, Paul says he has charged that the whole world is under sin, under the dominion, under the power of sin, and that brings disaster and death on all humanity. I say in this section, Paul contrasts death with eternal life, and death is generally equivalent to condemnation in verses 16 and 18. By death, therefore, Paul has in mind both physical and spiritual death. When Adam sinned by disobeying God's command, Genesis 2, 17, for when you eat of it, you shall surely die, that fruit, he did not immediately die physically, but spiritually. He was separated from God spiritually. He lost that state of fellowship. He was no longer in, in union with God. He was he was now an enemy of God. Physical death is the culmination and outworking of spiritual death. So 
Adam died spiritually, and that ultimately led to physical death. Having stated that sin entered the world through Adam and death as the consequence of sin, Paul next makes explicit that this death has spread to every person, and in this way, death came to all people. The reason that death spread to all people is because all sin. Death is universal because sin is universal, Paul says. I say here, the question remains, however, what exactly does it mean that death spread to the whole race because all sin? Okay, that's the big question. Death, we're told uh, in verse 12, death came to all people because all sin. Here's one way. One way that all sin has been understood is referred to personal acts of sin. According to this view, death spread to all men because all men have committed personal acts of sin. Now, if I'm just reading this along, like you and I are today, and I don't know anything about the Bible or anything theologically, I don't know any more about what Paul's going to say. If I just read that verse, that's the natural way of understanding verse 12. Okay. Death comes to all people because we all are sinners. We all commit active sins. We, we commit sins. We know that. That's what we would think it means. I say, that's why I say there's nothing in verse 12 itself, which is incompatible with understanding all sin as referring to personal acts of sin. But you would be wrong if you thought that. <laughs> Seems like that's the natural way to understand it. I say, but what Paul says in the rest of the passage renders this view erroneous. So what seems normal and natural here, death comes to all people because we've all sinned personally, is not what Paul is saying. And I'm going to show you that. I'm going to try to prove that, demonstrate that. First, this view that death comes to us because we sin individually, that that's the primary reason death comes to us, is inconsistent with the facts of human experience. Infants die who have not committed personal transgressions. There's the first problem with the idea that death comes to all people because all sin. I think most people admit that infants die, infants in the womb die, who have never committed a personal transgression in their life. So that doesn't fit. Second, there's a lot more arguments, but I'm simplifying here. Second, it's contradicted by five, verses 15 through 19, where six times Paul says that only one sin is the cause of universal death and condemnation. So I know he says death came to all people because all sinned. I'm going to explain that in a moment. But I'm saying if you look at the rest of what he says, six times he says that the reason for universal death and condemnation is one sin. Verse 15, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, verse 16, nor can the gift of God, salvation, be compared with the result of one man's sin, Adam's sin. The judgment followed one sin, not many sins, and brought condemnation. Verse 17, for if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. Verse 19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So Paul says that it's one sin, the sin of Adam, that brought that, that, that brought the fall, and his descendants, therefore, suffer the penal consequences of that. It's that one sin that brings death and condemnation. Third, it destroys, that is, the idea that uh, we die because of our personal acts. We're, we're, we die and we're condemned to hell strictly because of personal acts of sin. Uh, third, it destroys Paul's analogy between Adam and Christ. For if men died because of personal acts of sin, then they would be saved by personal acts of righteousness. And that's not true. The other way and the correct way in which the words all sin have been understood 
is that they refer to all men sinning in Adam, all people sinning in Adam. That is, that this is the correct meaning is clear from the fact that Paul is able to say that death is based upon the sin of all men in verse 12, while in verses 15 through 19, he bases it upon the sin of one man. Because this passage is a unit, Paul cannot be speaking of two different facts. Therefore, there must be some sort of solidarity existing between the one, Adam, and the all. So the sin of the one is at the same time the sin of the all. We should understand that Adam was appointed by God to be the representative head of the race and stood the probation for his posterity. Now that's a big statement there. And as I say, whole books have written on just on that statement. Adam is considered to be our representative head. He stood probation for us. And you might say, that's not very fair. I don't care for that. I didn't appoint him my representative. And that's true. You didn't, but God did. Now we like the other side of the equation. <laughs> the other side of the equation is Adam represent, I mean, Christ represented us on the cross and lived, he lived a perfect life and he suffered on the cross for our sins. We like that, you know, we didn't choose that, uh, but we love, we love that concept. So that's what uh, we're talking about here with uh, verse 12, that death comes to all men because all sin that is in Adam. We were in Adam in the sense that, uh, we're descendants of Adam, and that we suffer the penal consequences of his sin. All right. Now that leads to a little digression here, a parenthetical explanation. To be sure, sin was in the world, verse 13, before the law was given. Right? That's true. The law was given you know, the Exodus happened in 1446, 1446 BC, and Abraham lived 2100 BC, you know, and Adam lived long before that. So sin was in the world. Cain killed uh, Abel long before the law was given. Sin was in the world before the law was given at Mount Sinai, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a commandment, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. That is Christ. The words to be sure that begin verses 13 and 14 indicate these verses are explaining something in verse 12. Paul is responding to an objection that might arise from his own teaching in 4.15, where he said that without law, there can be no transgression. Now, there can be sin, but transgression is a crossing a boundary, going against a known law. Thus, one might conclude that apart from the law, there can be no sin and hence no death. That is, people can be penalized for their sins only if they were under the law. On the contrary, Paul insists, that death reigned even over those who did not sin by violating a specific law of God. Sin is not charged against anyone's account or imputed in the sense that it can be called a transgression when no law exists, but sin is still sin and brings God's condemnation and wrath. So the power of sin is so great, Paul is saying, that it exercises dominion over people even if no law exists. Because we are fallen in Adam, we sin, and that's still wrong, <laughs> and death is the result, condemnation. Paul hints at the comparison between Adam and Christ, which he began in verse 12 when he refers to Adam as a pattern or type of the one to come this typological relationship. He's a pattern, a type. This typical or typological relationship between Adam and Christ is explained in verses 15 
through 21. So Paul makes a statement in verse 14 that leads him to another digression. He says that um, uh, he didn't, uh, death reigned over those who didn't sin by breaking, as did Adam. Adam is a type of the one to come. You know, this type of type. And Adam is a type of the one to come. Um, so uh, Paul is going to say, well, listen, if we look at Adam and Christ, there's a great similarity between them. Because one is either in Adam, one is in Christ, one brought death and condemnation, one brings righteousness and life, okay. But there is great dissimilarity between them great dissimilarity. And that's what Paul is going to spend a lot of time here explaining is this. The similarity between the two consists in the fact that they, the, an act of each is considered to have determinative significance for those who belong to each. Both Adam and Christ stand at the head of the human race, and so they extend their influence, the, the, so, so, so extend the influence of their acts to all. Adam X, Adam's uh, affect all those who are in him, and that's the whole human race. Christ's act of obedience affects all who are in him. Now, not the whole human race are in him, but those who trust in him, as we'll see in verse 17. Um, so verses 15 through 17 show that the parallel between Adam and Christ is not exact. It's similar because what Adam did affects the entire, all who are in Adam. What Christ did affects all who are in Christ. But there's great similarity. Um, this similarity does not extend to the nature of the two acts and their consequences, as we'll see. Verse 15. But the gift, now we're going to look at these contrasts between what Adam did and what Christ did. The gift of salvation, the gift through Christ, is not like the trespass of Adam. They're dissimilar. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? The first contrast between Adam and Christ is one of degree, found in verse 15. The work of Christ, being a manifestation of grace, is far more powerful than that of Adam. So even though people are condemned in Adam, condemned and on their way to hell, Christ can rescue them. His act of grace is more powerful. Now, let's talk about this word many here. Paul's use of the word many is generally restrictive, meaning many are most, but not all. However, that's not the case here. Sometimes it's inclusive, equivalent to all. Context is the determining factor. When Paul says in the Protestants, there we're back to that Protestants, for if by the, if the many died, there's the if clause, the Protestants. Uh, when Paul says in the Protestants that the many died by the trespass of the one man, many clearly means all, since verse 12 has already stated that all died. Verse 12 says very clearly, uh, that uh, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and death came to all people. There's no, there's no one outside of Adam that, you know, everybody in Adam uh, is condemned to die. And so um, when I say here, Paul says in the process that the many died by the trespass of the one man, many here is equivalent to all. The many died, he doesn't mean some of Adam's descendants died, or, or some humans died, but the many means really all. It's just a way of expressing things that's a little unusual for us to use the word many. Greek does this quite often, however, that many has an, an inclusive sense. It's broader than just part of a group. So the many died, that is everybody in Adam died by the trespass. How much more? Uh, did, by, did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man overflow to the many? Um, so uh, I say here, it's also, uh, when Paul says in the Protestants that the many died by the trespass of one man, men, 
it means all, since verse 12 has already stated that, with no exceptions because of the sin of Adam. Also, it's clear that all of verse 18 is equivalent to many of verse 19. Now, we'll see this in verse 18 and 19. Paul uses many and all back to back. Notice verse 18. Consequently, just as the one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people, so also the righteous act of Christ resulted in justification in life for all people. But then the next verse, he uses the word, the word many as a synonym. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So we're talking about an inclusive thing here with the uses of many and all. Verse 16. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. We're looking at the dissimilarity between Christ and Adam. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. There's Adam. But the gift, the gift of salvation, followed many trespasses. That's all of our trespasses and brought justification. Verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Now that verse 17 is a very important phrase there. It says, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and gift of righteousness reign in life? So I say the second contrast between Adam and Christ is mainly one of consequence. Adam's act brought condemnation and death. Christ brought righteousness and life. Verse 17 elaborates on the contrast between condemnation and justification in verse 16. The condemnation resulting from Adam's act resulted in death, while the justification from Christ's act resulted in life. Now, while all are subject to the reign of death, not everyone is subject to the reign of life. So it might seem like, you know, Paul's drawing this parallel, Adam and Christ. Everybody's in Adam, but not everybody's in Christ. The reign of life is only for those who receive. You have to receive believe God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness. This is important because it'll seem in a moment that Paul is teaching universalism, that Paul is saying, you know, we're all sinners in Adam, but all of us are going to be saved in Christ. And there's a lot of, and there's people who teach that. There's people who are, we call universalists. They think everybody's going to heaven. Everybody will be saved. And of course we know that's totally contrary to what the Bible teaches and what Paul himself teaches very clearly. Now we see the comparison rephrased. Finally, we get to uh, the apotheosis we expected in verse 12, or Bill Combs expected anyway. The comparison rephrased. Consequently, just as one trespass, Adam, resulted in condemnation for all people, so the one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. Verse 13 is a summary or recapitulation of 12 through 17. Paul finally states in simple and complete form the comparison between Adam and Christ that is the heart of this paragraph. Trespass obviously refers to Adam's disobedience that led to his fall and the fall of the race. Christ's one act of righteousness refers to his atoning death. When Paul says that Christ's death resulted in justification and life for all people, does he mean that all people, regardless of whether they believe will be saved. Is Paul teaching universalism? I just said he wasn't, but it might seem like that. Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. It might seem like he's teaching that everybody will be saved, but no, that's not true. Because that runs counter, of course, to many texts in the Bible that teach punishment for those who do not embrace Christ, for those who do not believe in Christ by faith in this life. You know, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, and 9. This will happen, Paul says. 
when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So there's no universal salvation here. Um, some who do not accept Christ, if you don't accept Christ, there's no salvation. So how do we reconcile this universalistic language of verse uh, 18, and as we'll see as in verse 19, with other texts that speak of the reality of hell? What I'm, what I'm arguing here, what I think Paul is doing here is, is he's using lang this language because he wants to emphasize the fact that there can be assurance of justification and life in Christ just as certain and strong as there is of condemnation in, in Adam. Paul chooses this universal language because he wants to maintain the parallel between Adam and Christ. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to have a bunch of exceptions here. So, but in each case, Paul's point uh, is not so much that the groups affected by Christ and Adam are affected to the same extent, but that Christ does affect uh, those who are, who are his just as certainly as Adam affects those who are in him, those who are his. All people belong to Adam. They are in Adam. And therefore, they, they experience the effects of Adam. All those who receive the gift, remember verse 17 said, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life? So those who receive the gift are in Christ. So Paul makes it very clear here by, um, by his silence and by the logic of verses 12 through 14, there's no limitation whatsoever on the number of those who are involved in Adam's sin. We're all involved in Adam's sin. But the deliberate wording of verse 17, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision? Um, along with the persistent stress on faith that we've seen throughout this epistle, make it clear that um, it's faith in Christ that is the means of receiving righteousness. Only certain people derive benefits from Christ's righteous act. Everybody unfortunately uh, re receives condemnation from Adam but not everybody gets the benefits of Christ's act of righteousness, his perfect life and death, because they fail to receive as verse 17. So I'm just stressing that to argue here. Uh, we're not teaching, Paul is not teaching really universalism here. Verse 21, 19 through 20 in conclusion. <clears throat> For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Verse 19 explains and gives a confirmation of the statement contained in verse 18. Paul's uh, Christ's work is described as obedience. So the atoning work of Christ, Paul says, is effective in satisfying God's holy demands against sin because of Christ's obedience. And remember, we talk about his act of obedience, his perfect life, lived a perfect life, kept the law perfectly, and his passive obedience, his death on the cross. Both are necessary. His act of obedience secures right, perfect righteousness that is imputed to us, counted to us. His, his death uh, takes the wrath of sin and grants us forgiveness. I say the word made has a forensic connotation. It means to a point, set down in categories, assigned to a role or function or constituted. The many are placed in the category of sinners through Adam and in the category of righteous people by Christ. I say the statements in Romans 5.19 refer to statuses. One is either a sinner or one is righteous. 
And the context leading up to this verse makes it clear that one is made, uh, what one is made depends upon one's designation with either Adam or Christ. The history, history and destiny of the human race is determined by the actions of these two men, two men, Adam and Christ. Verse 20, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Paul has set forth the sin of Adam and the atoning deed of Christ as the controlling factors in human history. The question naturally rises, well, what was the purpose of the law then? How does it fit into the scheme of things discussed in the preceding verses? What is its role in salvation, in the history of salvation? What was God doing with the law? Paul now answers that question. The law was brought in so the trespass might increase. The verb brought in often has a negative connotation. The only other occurrence in the New Testament is Galatians 2.4, where Paul applies it to the Judaizers who have been brought in or sneaked in to spy out the freedom of the Galatian the Gentile Christians. So the law's been brought in. It's been introduced into a situation in which sin already holds sway and has no power to fundamentally alter that situation. As Paul says in Galatians uh, um, as Paul says in, I didn't get the conclusion there, did I? As Paul says in Galatians 3.19, uh, what, then, what then was the law? Why then was the law given at all? Why was the law given? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred has come. So it was added. The law came with a purpose, but its purpose was not to change the situation created by Adam. It didn't save anybody. It actually made it worse. The law has increased, Paul said, not erased, not neutralized, as many Jews perhaps, and maybe some Jewish Christians might have argued that the law somehow uh, solved the situation by keeping the law like they taught. They taught in as Paul is arguing against in Galatians, keeping the law can save you. No, it, the law made things worse, it made it a transgression. But I say, but in what sense has the law increased the trespass? In accordance with 4.15, Paul is asserting that God's purpose, or one of his purposes in giving the law of Moses to Israel, was to intensify the consequences of sin. So the fact and power of sin introduced into the world by Adam has not been decreased by the law, but given a new dimension as rebellion against the revealed detailed will of God. Sin's now a transgression against God. It's worse. Paul, but as Paul has emphasized throughout this paragraph, God's grace is more than sufficient to overcome the increase in the power and seriousness of sin brought about by the law. For Paul says, for in the very place where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So however deep in sin that Israel may have sunk, God's grace was deeper yet. God's settled purpose was to bless Israel, to bless his people in spite of themselves. And in course, in Christ, we find the fulfillment of God's grace, of God's superabounding grace. Verse 21, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul now states the purpose of the superabounding grace in verse 20, last part of verse 20. This verse also summarizes and concludes Paul's great contrast between Adam and Christ. Paul often thinks in terms of spheres or dominions, and the languages of reigning is very appropriate here. Grace reigns. It has dominion. Uh, death has its own dominion. Humanity as determined and dominated by Adam. And in this dominion, sin is in control. But those of us who are saved are transferred into a new dominion, to another, the dominion of righteousness in which grace reigns and where life is the eventual outcome. Uh, remember verse two, through whom, uh, he said, through whom, through whom, that is through Christ, we've gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. We're in the state of grace. 
Um, remember verse 17, he says, for if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of Christ reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ? And all of this, Paul reminds us, is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 